Welcome to Reseed, a podcast about repairing our relationship to nature. Reseed tells the stories of a regeneration, the people embracing repair, redesign, reuse, and reduction, the people who are uprooting the extractive status quo and rooting the future in justice, well being, resilience, and care. This is a podcast for those of us who are reimagining our relationship to the natural world and to each other. I am Alice Irene Whitaker, the host of Reseed. Together, let's plant the seeds that transform us from being takers to caretakers. Welcome. Today, I speak with Jade Robitaille from Minicycle, a Montreal startup that specializes in circular economy for kids' fashion. She and I talk about reducing waste and how to make zero waste more accessible. We get into greenwashing, gender, motherhood, and of course, how quickly our children are growing. We discuss decentralizing resources the connections between land, dyes, materials, and our bodies, as well as the emotional side of considering climate change in these years to come. I don't think it's about like being perfectly zero waste, but I think it's really important to ask yourself questions. When you throw something in the garbage, that's going somewhere. It's not just, you know, you throw it away. So as soon as you start asking yourself questions, yeah, okay, it becomes like a heavier burden to carry. But you're not blinded anymore, and you're trying your best to make the best decisions as you can. First, a story. When I was first pregnant with my daughter, I went to a thrift store, unsure of how many onesies a new infant requires, but quite sure that I wanted to embrace secondhand clothing with my expected mysterious child. It was and is important to me that I reduce the waste and environmental impact that I have through the clothing that I choose to put on my body and on my family. I don't know how many children wore those onesies before my daughter did, but I do know that she wore them as well as three of my friend's children, my two sons after that, and my new nephew. These sweet little garments have had many lives. They've clothed many wee ones. There is this quiet, under-recognized network of women who, on top of much labor, lovingly organize, clean, fold, box, label, and share children's clothes with their sisters and friends at this vulnerable time of new motherhood. These parents most often women, then spend large amounts of time over the course of years organizing clothing over the arc of seasons, unearthing boxes from crawl spaces and attics and the backs of closets, time capsules of their children's lives. Mittens, sweaters, boots, and coats come out from last winter, measuring how much time has passed and how much their children have grown in the seasons of a year. This is a story of children's clothing, yes, and textiles, time passing, and the valiant confrontation of overconsumption. It would be easier to buy cheap and new and for those cute disposable clothes to end up in relentlessly growing landfills that our planet cannot sustain. 
especially when we're having babies for the first time. Companies market to us and know it's this time when you're making decisions for the first time ever and you want just the best for your child. And at that time, they really try and actually convince you to make new purchases and new purchasing habits that you stay in for years. This is another story, though, the one that we're going to hear today, the story of circular kids' fashion. Jade Robitaille is the founder and owner of Minicycle and the mother of two daughters. She has decided to center her life on combating fast fashion while also cultivating balance in her own life and business. Circling our garments over and over is a powerful way to reduce impact on the natural world in so many ways. This interconnects with greenhouse gas emissions, materials, water, biodiversity, and the human hands that are involved in labor. Every time a piece of clothing is used for nine months, it decreases its environmental footprint by 25%. And so wearing clothing often, caring for garments carefully, mending, swapping, and fostering secondhand purchases are ways in which we can be better stewards of the materials and labor that go into creating clothing. Jade will talk more about how she is rescuing and recycling clothing as many times as possible, lowering the impact on the environment while also working to make circular kids' fashion more affordable and more accessible. Before my conversation with Jad, I'll briefly let you know that I released another episode today with David Cote, co-founder of Loop Mission, a project that works to reduce food waste by rescuing perfectly good produce that is headed for landfill, and then they transform it into everything from fresh-pressed juice to gin. David, like Jad, who you'll hear from in just a few moments, is also creating and advancing the circular economy in Montreal, Canada. And because of these interconnections, I've released both episodes today. A bit of a theme. You can expect episodes of Reseed to come out every two weeks. And the next episode is with Erica Violet Lee and Brianna Brown from Indigenous Climate Action on January 3rd in the new year. If you're enjoying Reseed, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with people in your life with whom you think it would resonate. Okay. Here is my conversation with Jade Robitaille. Hi, Jade. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Hi, Alice. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure. So I wanted to start by asking about uh, you as a child and your relationship with the natural world. So my grandfather had, well, we still have that land but we have a land maybe 45 minutes away from uh, from Montreal we call it up north and so my grandparents would take care of us often there and it's we have like a hundred acres of forests up there so now my dad lives there and I it's just like I know the forest by heart like the type of plants and you know which rock to climb and so I feel like this was really my my natural world as a child that grew up in the city um, so I would spend a lot of time there and, you know, being connected with nature. And my grandparents would leave us be, even as a young child. So we'd go in the forest and walk on our own and just explore with our cousins. So um, I'd say that's that's 
yeah, my connection to the natural world. And it's, it's a place I've been going to ever since I was a baby and I still go there and I'm still introducing my daughters to the same land. And uh, it holds a very special place for me. Beautiful. Uh, One of my favorite uh, quotes is from Jane Goodall. It is the piece of the forest that I carry inside. Yeah. And I always love that and feel that when I'm in the forest. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so ever since my grandparents passed away and so we buried their ashes there between like special trees and also like uh, two years ago, my dog passed away. So I planted like a new tree and like put her ashes underneath so it's it's really that legacy that that land is giving and I feel like when I'm there I think more about generations uh, what it was like for my grandparents my grandfather as a kid to be here and my dad and you know when my dad met my mom they would go and walk on that land too and now when I'm teaching my children to like how to enjoy a forest and the type of trees and the leaves and I don't know it's uh, it's very special I'm picturing in my mind all of your footsteps, like yeah. over the same path, you know, mm-hmm. all the different generations over yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you can't describe the feeling. It's just uh, very magical. I wanted to move over, you know, from the past and you as a child to where you are now and wanted to hear about MiniCycle, which mm-hmm. you founded and lead. So where did the idea come from and what are you doing with it today? I did a bachelor's degree in commerce and then I went on to do a master's degree in environmental studies uh, where I focused on green buildings and renewable energy, um, you know, passive house certification and things uh, related to uh, how to make buildings more efficient. And then while I was doing my master's degree, I became pregnant, pregnant with my first child. So moved back to Montreal, um, and then I finished my thesis from, from home, essentially, to be closer to my family. And then when I finished, uh, someone approached me to teach uh, strategies for sustainability at McGill as a course lecturer, which I did. And at that point, I was again pregnant, you know, and um, I was just looking on, I didn't know what to do. I knew that I had now young children. It kind of changed my perspective of what a career should be like and how I wanted to split my time between uh, my family and the career that I wanted to build. And so as I was teaching strategies for sustainability, I um, studied more and more circular economy. And so oftentimes I thought like my feeling was there, there was a lot of literature and a lot of studies on, you know, how to make food systems more sustainable, how to make uh, transportation systems more sustainable, how to make building the building industry more sustainable. And then I had my children, I had to dress them. And then I thought it was so wasteful because they're growing up so fast. And then I didn't really have the means to buy like a $50 piece for each single little piece. Um, but then I didn't want to encourage the fast fashion and anything that was made from polyester. Uh, then I was looking on, you know, Marketplace or Craigslist or Kijiji and everything I could find was always more of fast fashion. And I was thinking, where do these good pieces end up and who buys them? And what happens in that industry, especially for children, because it's not, um, it's really a need to dress them because they're growing up and we have no other choice but to dress them. So that's kind of how I started the idea of MiniCycle in the sense that I wanted to give tools to parents to be able to shop sustainably and teach them what a sustainable piece looks like. But at the same time, try to find ways to make it more accessible because 
when it's new, you might want to buy one piece, but you might not be able to buy your whole child's, you know, closet with just sustainable new pieces. So that's where the idea of buying new and secondhand and guaranteeing to buy it back came from, you know, really allowing people to do a kind of a mix and match between the new and the secondhand and then giving them incentives like financial incentives to bring it back and then offer it in the second hand at a discounted price so it's more accessible. The other idea with this was that oftentimes the people were buying the good pieces new. They're not the ones that necessarily want to participate in the second hand market. So by offering them the new pieces and then when they come back they have a credit they can buy again new pieces. So all of a sudden you're able to include them in that secondhand market, even though they're not the one purchasing it, but then they're the one bringing them back. Whereas like oftentimes when it's a thrift store, they'll get a credit to that thrift store. But if they're not ones that buy secondhand, then that doesn't help solve the problem. Right. I think that what you pointed out where, you know, there's so much literature on the food systems and buildings and circular economy, but not fashion and textiles, I think is quite a gendered thing. Like it's counted as frivolous or only for women when all of us engage with that industry. Exactly. Like it's, you know, if you look at the Maslow hierarchy of needs, like Dressing yourself is part of it. You know, you have to protect your body against uh, the elements and the kids, they grow up so fast. So they need, especially in our climate, they need winter boots. They need good coats. They need, they need everything. We don't need to over purchase, but it's still a need. And that's why for women too, it's just that women has turned into a thing that's like renewable, but not because we need it, but just because we want to be like last fashion. But for children, really there's, it's an essential need. I saw that with my own children too, when they were born, you know, you're, they're flying through clothing so yeah. quickly. And you know, what do you do with something that you've only worn three times? And- yeah. And it's not something you think about before you have children, but once you have children, you realize like, wow, like just the management of things, it's complicated. You know, like he's like, make a box for like next season. Is it going to still fit by then? I don't know. Then it doesn't fit. How do you dispose of it properly? It's a real job. I find that I have three kids that are all two years apart. And so there's a future and past box for each of them. But I also think it sort of measures time. Like you could, you put something away that looks too big and all of a sudden it fits them and you notice how time has passed. Yeah, exactly. It goes by so quickly. Yeah. I'd like to explore motherhood more and how being a mother has shaped what you've chosen to do. You spoke to that a little bit mm-hmm. in your last answer, but it'd be interesting to delve into motherhood yeah. and how it relates. So uh, when I had my first, so I was still studying and it was, it was a surprise. So I was kind of trying to hide it because I wanted to finish like teaching and not be like super big. So I finished like, so I did my master's degree in Kingston, Ontario so I left when I was six months pregnant. I remember it was in December. So it was kind of a clean cut because I left when it was like Christmas break. And uh, before actually doing my master's degree, I was working at Bombardier Transportation and I had like super high career plans, like super focused on my career. I knew exactly where I was going. And then I had my first child and the everything went out the window like it's like as if like life slowed down and I just wanted to 
be with my child and take care of her. And so after the one year maternity leave, I was not ready to send her to daycare. So I really took my time. So I took like 18 months. And then when she was 18 months, I um, put her only three days in the morning. And like I did it very, very gradual just because I wanted to enjoy that time with her and I wanted to be there for her. Obviously, I understand that not everyone has that luxury, but uh, it was something that we decided to do and, um, you know, sacrifice other parts, financial parts of our lives to, for me to be with my child. And then, yeah, so I became pregnant again when the first one was 18 months. So I never really started working again. You know, I do some projects here and there, but I think like I stopped, like if I don't count my master, so I did my master's degree within that time and I did teach within that time, but I was not like a full-time hire anywhere for a good five years. And so after when my youngest was maybe two, I, I thought, okay, now it's time, like I'll go back to work, I'll find a job. And since I had done all these studies and, you know, uh, my master's degree in environmental studies, and before then I was a project manager for like, uh, train system so I was trying to find something in sustainability and project management like the career search was so so depressing that I I had the impression that maybe I was not being considered because I had like a hole in my CV maybe it's a wrong impression I don't know but so that's kind of what pushed me also to start my own business I kind of knew I wanted to build my own thing but I had just had never had like a aha idea that came to me Teaching has helped me, you know, brainstorm and think about different concepts. And that's really where the idea came from. And even though owning your own business is very demanding, very stressful, uh, it's not as if you don't have a bus. Like my bus is my clients. My bus are my employees. Like I owe everything to them. Uh, but I can make my own schedule. And that for me is very important. So uh, my children, they go to school nine to three. So I'm able to drop them off and pick them up, just work later at the, in the day. Sometimes I'll alternate to with my mom and my, uh, my partner. I feel like they have a good balance because we're able to have a flexible schedule. And I'm very, very thankful for that. And also it goes so quickly. You know, they're five and seven already. Like soon, you know, they won't need me anymore. So I'm really happy that I can be there for them. It's so nice to be needed like that yeah, in those yeah. early years. Yeah, exactly. Something that stood out to me on your website was this idea of accessibility, which is quite prominent there and how we yeah. make, you know, circular economy accessible to everyone, how uh, we make sure that these ethical, organic garments are accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. So how do you think we can approach accessibility as a circular economy community? There's different aspects of it. My belief is that for social business or social entrepreneurship or, you know, environmentally oriented businesses to work, they have to be scalable. And by scalable, we mean also accessible. So that's one of the biggest challenge I have with Minicycle. So there's scalable from the business part, but there is also scalable, like, is it big enough? Can we reach enough people in the market to participate? Because the, the idea is you don't want to be sustainability a thing of only for elite and people have money or else you won't be able to make a dent in the industry that you're trying to change. Um, so as you know, Minicycle doesn't make their own clothes. My first idea was that there's enough people making enough clothes in this world. 
I'll just facilitate the flow of these clothes in a more meaningful way. The clothes that we sell new, I have no control over the retail price because the retail price is set by the brands that make them. So they have a certain cost. They have a certain margin that they need to make. And so I'm pretty much at the mercy of these prices. So on that end, the only thing I can make accessible is make it easy for people to shop for it and easy for them to receive it at home if they're busy with their children. And so it makes shopping much easier and make the website as user-friendly as possible. But then we're thinking price point. So the price is very high on new, sustainable, like make made with noble fibers pieces or it's expensive. So that's the point I'm trying to tackle every day, trying to brainstorm on how to bring those clothes to people who have probably a lower purchasing power so that they can also be included in the circular economy. So one thing that we do, so we have kind of three chapters to our website. So the first one is the new stuff, which again is like, okay, you might buy one or two pieces, or if you have a big purchasing power, you might buy everything, but really not for everyone. Then we have a second chapter, which is called rescues. So what we do is when a, when a vendor or a shop or a brand produce too much or is closing down, oftentimes they'll reach out to us and see if we can buy the rest of their inventory. Obviously we try for these pieces to fit our ethos, like to make sure that, you know, they're made sustainably because we guarantee to buy back everything. So we can't just buy like, random stuff made from polyester but so if they fit our criteria we'll buy it back um, we buy it at half of the original wholesale price so we will resell it at half of the original retail price so that allows us to offer a better price point to our customers and the thing that's really interesting is when they bring it back uh, we always use the original retail value to price uh, the amount that we give back to our customers. So if someone bought something for, let's say, $50 in the rescues, but it was originally worth 100 and then they bring it back and it's still like new, so we'll be able to resell it for probably almost the same price that it was purchased rescues. So it means we'll give back $25 to that person. So all of a sudden, that super good piece cost them $25. And then the third chapter is the obviously the recycled pieces. So oftentimes, if they're more worn, the, pri the price point will be maybe 30% of its original retail value. So that becomes much more interesting for the person who's purchasing it to participate in the circular economy. Uh, the only issue with that is it's limited. Uh, we only drop, well, it's still, for me, it's a lot, but it's not enough to, to answer to the demand. But we add about 350 to 400 pieces every week on our website. And I'd say like in an hour, 70% of it is sold. So there's really a demand for it. It's just, it's, again, when I talked about scalability, it's putting one, one secondhand piece online takes so much effort. You know, you need to put in place some systems of standardization and technologies to make it scalable and make all these processes faster. Um, so I, I feel like if you want the circular economy to work, um, it needs to, technology has to back it. The price point has to be there. And also the way that the pieces are built is very important. The types of material, how you can rematerialize the stuff that was produced in the first place so that it avoids the landfill at all costs.
You mentioned circular economy right now while you're speaking and in your materials for Minicycle. And I'm wondering from your vantage point, have you seen over the past three years and, and even before that when you were studying circular economy, have you seen that it's gaining momentum as a term with individual citizens and the public? And have you ever grappled with do we use the words circular economy or do we speak about it in a different way? Is it too technical? Just that term yeah. itself. So at the beginning, I would never use circular economy three years ago. And that's pretty, that's essentially why we're called zero waste kits fashion, because the idea is exactly it is once you're done with your clothes, if you don't know what to do with it, we'll take it back and we'll figure out what to do with it. It won't go to landfill. Zero waste is a term that people know more much more than circular economy so yeah if you go on our website you won't see mini cycle circular economy you'll see like uh, zero waste kits fashion i do mention it in the about because i feel like people who want to learn more might be interested in knowing more like the terms that kind of uh direct our mission at mini cycle um but i do think that now when i say circular economy people know what i'm talking about i feel like in the last five years, it's changed a lot. Like people have heard of circular economy, then might not understand like 100% what it means. It's not a foreign word or a technical word that they can't grasp. So they, they do understand it. But I still feel like for now, keeping zero waste kids fashion is a better way to describe it to reach as many people as possible. I've been seeing that too. And seeing the term in media and also in businesses and brands are using it more overtly mm. saying we are circular economy mm-hmm. uh, in nature versus a few years ago when it uh, was a little more obsolete yeah. Yeah. i've actually looked it up online where you can track different terms over time and you oh, can see that sustainability yeah. stays sort of the same zero waste has a huge spike and then kind of evens out and circular economy seems to be on that on that yeah upward so, trend right now yeah so maybe in a year or two we won't be zero waste uh kids fashion will be circular <laughs> but the thing we'll is see. you don't want to see circular economy it's like a circular business model it's just that circular economy it, it englobes a lot of stuff i would maybe not use just circular economy it would be probably like circular kids fashion or something like that right that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense and it's it's so complex and has so many nuances mm-hmm. and... i'm super careful the words that we use on the website because there's so much greenwashing and so much uh, misuse of words so do you see your role as sort of this intermediary making sure that you avoid greenwashing like a way to filter it out in what you sell yeah, for sure. It's so hard because we don't produce our own clothes. So that's why I'm very wary of what type of terms we use because it's impossible for me to go have a look at every single brand that we sell and check their production. And even if they're certified as per our criteria, like how long ago was it certified? Did someone check it? You know, there's there's a lot of things that come into place. And also like how far down do you go back into the production line? Because oftentimes... It's for their own production, but then where did they buy the fabric? Where did it come from? How is it grown? Like it's, there's no transparency there. So I can't say like we're the ethical kids fashion because I have no transparency on that. And we're still a small startup. So I'm hoping that with time and with the more power that we gain, let's say with our vendors, 
that will be able to influence and get more information on these processes with time. And also with time, there's more and more tools that come with transparency and you know studying the supply chain, which are really interesting too. So I'm really hoping that in the next few years, we'll be able to have a better view on those. But for now, what I can say and what I can control is when stuff comes back, I can know if it holds through time. I can know which fabric is good, which fabric is good to reuse, and then you know readjust our offering based on our own experience. I can control that nothing goes to landfill. I can control all these things, but I, on the going up the the chain, I can't say yeah that cotton yeah it says it's certified organic but i didn't go there to check it and i don't know when they were certified and then i don't know who made that fabric like in what type of situation it was made because even like the vendor that sells me the pieces they buy that fabric some from somewhere else so it's so you know there's so many steps along the production line that it's 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 hard as a small business to be able to vouch for all these things especially when you sell like We have more than 50 brands now that we sell. So our focus really right now is on what we can control, and that's durability. I want to talk more about fabrics and yeah. fibers. Mm -hmm. Textiles connect our land to our bodies, mm -hmm. and I'd love to hear how fabrics and dyes play a part in MidiCycle. So we only focus on natural fibers uh, because first the man-made fibers oftentimes have a very, very big impact on uh, its extraction. So let's say if we just talk about polyester, you have to extract oil and that's, you know, produces a lot of emissions. And then also uh, we want to have natural fibers because we're also thinking about the end of the life of the pieces. So even though we want to avoid landfill, let's say, I don't know, I have this vest and um, there's holes everywhere. I can't resell it the way it is. Uh, and I decide to make like a teddy bear with it. I'm still going to have scraps from, from this shirt. So I want to make sure that if it doesn't get recycled, that at least if it ends up in nature, that it's going to be something that won't pollute, that will uh, decompose after six months. Um, so plastic might biodegrade, but it will still, all the plastic particles stay in the environment. And same thing when our customers wash their pieces. So when we wash polyester, it creates a lot of like microplastic in our waterways. And then that's impossible to filter out. So if you start with natural fiber, at least you have natural products that go back in nature if they end up being wasted or if there's leakages from how we wash the pieces. So that's kind of our first focus. Then once we've looked at just taking natural fibers, we look at, like I said, durability. So for instance, bamboo, well, there's different ways to make bamboo. So uh, bamboo rayon is not something that lasts really well. It also pollutes a lot when you produce it. So right now, internally, we just don't buy any uh, bamboo because oftentimes it won't even say how it's made. Uh, it's just going to say bamboo and uh, we don't really want to encourage pieces or brands that are not making their pieces to last, especially because we guarantee to buy back. And we find anyways that natural fabrics, the yarn is longer. So oftentimes it peels less, it keeps its shape better. It's easier to repair. It's easier to wash. It's easier to destain. And finally, the last point, which I don't advertise a lot, but the skin is the biggest organ we have on our body. You have a newborn, they were just born, their skin is super porous, 
Do you really want to put plastic on their skin as soon as they're born? No. Do you want to put cotton that was full of pesticides on their bodies? Probably not. So there's this whole idea of like keeping that natural world around your baby and keeping them safe. We think a lot about what we put inside our bodies, but what we put on our skin is also very important. So thinking about like natural dyes and, you know, um, noble fibers that are natural and not dangerous for the skin. It's interesting. There's been so much awareness around food and the impact with our health and the environment, but that same connection with, with fashion has not been made yet. No, exactly. I feel like more and more people are aware of it. If you look at the generations like millennials and Gen Z, they're much more aware than generations that come after all before. I mean, there's a big difference. And I, you know, I see it more and more in our customers. They're asking for specific things and they, they're very aware as to what they consume and what they put on their children. They see their children as an extension of them. So they're not interested anymore in buying like 50 plastic bodysuits from Old Navy. You know, that's not the idea anymore. It's changing slowly, but it's changing. Your children are growing, as you mentioned. And like I mentioned, I have three young children. And when I hear about net zero targets or just the future in general, 2030, 2050, I personally feel very fearful. It's hard to mm. think about what that year will look like for them uh, when, and when I think what age they, they will be still so young. Do you think with what you're doing, uh, that your children are learning from what you're doing? And do you think of their future? What's your, what comes up for you when you think about them in 20 years? Mm -hmm. Well, I do think that you influence your kids by much more by what you do than what you say, right? So they they really look at you and analyze you and learn from you. So they understand Minicycle, they are proud of it and they love it. So they'll be the first one to advertise for me and we're talking to people. Obviously, they're still young, so they probably don't understand all the intricacies, but they're very much aware of climate change and, you know, resource depletion. And I feel like in some ways, sometimes I feel bad for them because it's a heavy burden to carry. And um, I know more and more young people have this like environmental anxiety because they don't know what's going to what the future is going to hold. And it doesn't seem to doesn't seem like the present generations are really trying hard enough to make a difference to sustain our future uh, on this planet. <clears throat> so for me too, that worries me a lot. And sometimes I try to teach them or teach anyone for that matter is that oftentimes people think that their little gesture doesn't change anything, but it's really as a whole, we can make a difference. So if everyone thinks the same way, we're never gonna get anywhere. I think it really has to come from all sphere of the society, whether it's government putting in like stricter policies or businesses, you know, really stepping up and offering real services and products that do not kill our planet, kill our environment. And also customers with their, they have, they have power in the way that they purchase and the way that they consume. So they're sending a message. I think the generations like your kids and my kids, they're very exposed to it and um, they're going to be very careful and they'll, they'll be the, the game changers. I think they, they'll, they'll start the businesses that no one has had the guts to start and 
they will help you know change the way that we see the world as it is right now you know alleviate poverty uh, probably at some point eating meat's going to be something of the past so you know there's going to be a lot of things that are going to change like it's hard for me to know what's going to happen in the future but i really do think that they're going to be agents of change and just a way they're being taught at school and being exposed to different you know industries that are trying to help the way we're living on this planet they will certainly be courageous the the times will demand it of them yeah. and i like what you were saying uh you know we're all parts of this whole right and all of us need we need to use everything at our disposal so many different ways everyone with their own role and their own influence yeah. at, in one whole yeah i don't think it's about being perfect it's i don't think it's about like being perfectly zero waste or you know living your life uh, based on the circularity of ecosystems but i think it's really important to ask yourself questions when you throw something in the garbage that's going somewhere it's not just you know you throw it away So as soon as you start asking yourself questions, yeah, okay, it becomes like a heavier burden to carry. But you're not blinded anymore and you're trying your best to make the best decisions as you can as when you don't ask yourself any questions, it's very easy to forget about it all and to make the wrong decisions. At least if you make the wrong decision, you know you're doing it and you might want to improve with time on how you made those uh, decisions in your life. Um, but yeah, I feel like the questioning part is very important. B being analytical with how we evolve in this world and the whole, every system that we use in our everyday life, it's kind of like an awakening in some ways of understanding how society works and how you can help, help it be better. We started talking about generations at the beginning of this conversation, you as a child and the previous generations in, in that forest that you talked about. I wanted to ask if there is anything around generations that you wanted to add. So either anything from past generations that have influenced you in what you're doing and then how that extends to future generations, which is something that you write about on your, your website as well, mm -hmm. and passing this on for future generations. Yeah. So like my great, great grandparents, you know, were, and your great, like all great grandparents, <laughs> they were pretty much about reusing, you know, and using as little as possible. Their livelihoods relied on the local economy. And then there was industrialization and the internet. And all of a sudden you could, you know, buy things from across the world and like have access to all these foods and products from everywhere. So I feel like now there's a movement to rethink that industrialization and to really acknowledge that, you know, we don't need to consume as much and we can repair things, we can reuse things and we can encourage the local economy. And that's already... I feel like a step forward and I feel like this generation and the ones to come are really focused on that. And so what I teach in strategies for sustainability is that there's two mindsets for solutions for sustainability. There's like the ecotopian and the techno fix. So ecotopian is someone like really going back to the land and having those local economies, preparing, making like handcrafting things and living like a small life, you know, within your community with as little impact as possible and being self-sufficient of the grid. 
And then you have these techno fix, which the idea is like, oh no, like, uh, you know, we're depleting the, the ozone. So let's put something in the atmosphere to protect us from the sun. Or, um, you know, let's try to put windmills everywhere to create, you know, renewable energy and then distribute that energy, uh, you know, at large. So bigger systems, bigger solutions. Uh, I really think it's going to be a mix of both. I don't think societies will want to go back in time and live by the land and be self-sufficient. Some will and some are doing it, but I don't think it's going to stick with most people. And at the same time, I don't think that technology can solve all issues, especially if we continue growing as a population and consuming as much as we do. So there's going to have to be a bit of both. Going back to your question, looking at past generation is really learning from the ways that they were doing, you know, by reusing and consuming little and, you know, interacting in their local economy. And in the future, for sure, there's going to be new technologies that are, that are going to help us be more sustainable. But I do think that with the way that population is growing and the demand and the pressure for natural resources is going, there's going to have to be, you know, an idea of localization and you know consuming as close as possible from our homes so really decentralizing uh, the resources that we use that was today's episode of reseed i'd love to hear what you thought about our conversation reseed is created on unceded algonquin land thank you to this place Thank you to Rebecca Rivola for podcast cover art and Tegan Akers for being an outside eye. And thank you for listening. Together, let's plant the seeds that transform us from being takers to caretakers. Caretakers.